Hello, and welcome to another DBSA podcast, which if you're just joining us, stands for Dear Bitches and Smart Authors, but iTunes wouldn't let me put bitches in the title, so DBSA. I'm Sarah from Smart Bitches Trashy Books, and with me is Jane from Dear Author, and today we're talking about reader expectations, authors, and reactions when the readers don't quite get what they were expecting. You could probably guess what we're going to talk about. Two things I want to say. One, we are going to avoid spoilers. Do not fear if you haven't read some of these books, we don't spoil them. Number two, later on in the podcast, I talk a little bit about a book that I thought had overtones of assault. That is something that you are not really cool about listening to. You want to turn it off right about the time when Jane is finished talking about what's coming up on Dear Author, because then I start talking. And you can skip that part. Totally cool. This podcast is brought to you by Intermix. And they would like to tell you about Pamela Clare's Striking Distance, an all-new, sexy action romance that's on sale now. And I'll have more information at the end of the podcast about that. And now, on with the podcast. I imagine that because I was fasting for three hours this morning, and that tends to make me a little stupid, I will say amazingly dumb things, and you can really enjoy telling me how wrong I am. (laughs) (laughs) But I thought the consensus on Twitter after our last one was that you were right and I was wrong. Well, I only heard of like one or two people said that. Angie said that and somebody else um, was saying that they agreed with me about new adult and, and Harlequin presents an angst. But I don't know. Generally speaking, one of us was trained for many years how to win an argument and one of us was not. So generally, I, I accept w- my ability to not win an argument against you. I was uh, at uh, the Bucksbaum lecture last week, which is a series of lectures that are sponsored by um, a very wealthy person. <laughs> I am going to guess his name is Bucksbaum. Am I right? Yeah. Yay! He was the, one of the founders of general growth properties. Right. Which is for those who don't know, a giant mall, uh, complex. They, they, uh, built the mall of America, for example, they host a series of lectures. So we've heard like Maya Angelou and president Carter and, um, Bill Bryson, and the last Bucksbaum lecture was Neil deGrasse Tyson. Who is so cool. Yeah, he was really, um, he, he did a good talk. We take my, um, we take my daughter uh, to all of these lectures. Um, even though she might not get anything out of it, I hope that something sticks in her mind and then later on she'll appreciate it. <laughs> <clears throat> but one of the things that he said, uh, someone asked him in the question and answer portion, you know, what should we get out of college? And he said that the best thing to get out of college is to learn to have your mind trained to think in a different sort of way. I totally agree with that. And I was talking to my husband on my way home and I said, you know, I didn't have that experience in college. I I didn't know how to study when I went in. Um, and for those who don't know, I went to a very pri- small private uh, Christian school, and uh, I was the only senior in my class, or, or the only person in my class for many years. And uh, mo- basically what Wait, I did... you were the only person in your class? Like there was just you? Well, what it, ha- it was a combined school. Uh, my parents were very religious. And so we, um, they took us out of public schooling when I was in uh, the fourth grade, and uh, we went to a couple different Christian schools, fundamentalist Christian schools, um, since then, after that. And they weren't real schools. <laughs> they weren't real? If you no, were the only person in your school. class, I would say not. Holy crap. Uh, 
we're basically homeschooled in a larger setting. So, for example, the school <laughs> that I ended up going to through from six through when I graduated was uh, had a combined uh, size K through twelve of about a hundred people. Holy crap! My graduating class from high school was in three hundred and forty something people. Yeah, my daughter's classes are like five, six hundred. Um, you know, split into different classrooms, but it's quite large. So you were the only person in your class. Right. So I would do these um, like workbooks and then they would be graded by someone. And then when I was done, then I would get a new workbook. So I really had no studying skills. We didn't have to write papers. You know, that was like an entirely new um, endeavor for me. And critical thinking is not something that is uh, promoted in um, fundamentalist Christian doctrine. Because, you don't say. Right. <laughs> don't question the word of God. <laughs> oh, my God. So did you go to college and be like, holy shit. Pretty I'm much. So I mean, screwed. it was a entirely, not only was I socially stunted, I mean, that was a huge um, experience for me, but just classes in, themselves and how to like comport myself in class. So I spent like four years figuring out, oh, you know, um, this is what I'm supposed to grasp from the text. And it took me a long time. It was a real struggle. And um, But in law school, that's where I learned um, how to think and how to analyze information. I always think of you, uh, and I never thought of my reviewing habits this way until you told me that this is how I do it, and I can totally see myself doing it now, but that I analyze every book as if there's a specific hypothesis they presented at the beginning, yep. and then the text has to justify that hypothesis throughout yep. until the end. Yes, and you are judging whether or not a favorable argument has been made for the endurance of the happy ever after of the couple. Right, yep. right. But totally that, true. I, so that's how I was trained in law school. I was trained to think differently than I'd ever been uh, trained before. But you were also, one of the things I know about law school as well is that... Um, you learn how to predict the other side of the argument because part of making a good argument is anticipating what the other side is going to say. So you you have to have some sort of, if not fluency, then familiarity with what the other side of that argument is. So sure. When, so you are actually very well equipped to argue both sides of a situation and see things from both perspectives, which is a good thing for your brain to be able to do. So I'm assuming that you and your undergrad had a different experience than I did. Actually, yeah. Um, <laughs> I went from a high school in Pittsburgh and went to a very small women's college in South Carolina. I was the only Yankee for about three years, and the school was about 1,200 total students. And, and it was a suitcase college, which meant that on like Friday afternoon – 89% to 95% of the college just went home for the weekend because most people were local or from a within an hour or two drive. And so I was, I would go to lunch on Friday and there would be like, you know, a couple hundred people in the dining hall. And then I'd go to dinner on Friday and there'd be like eight people. And those are the people who didn't have cars. Because if you didn't have a car, you weren't going anywhere. And we weren't in the most awesomest part of Columbia, South Carolina, but I did learn um, 
how to shop at one of six different Walmarts because I had never had a Walmart before and then I learned that each one is a different strength. I learned how to draw because when I talked, people figure out very quickly that I wasn't from around there and I would get treated differently and that would make me feel awkward and embarrassed. I had just as many social issues as you did, so fear, fear not. So I learned to imitate everyone who was around me and learn how to imitate Lexington, South Carolina. I learned how to imitate Spartanburg, which is very different from Charleston, which is different from North Carolina. And I still have an ability to pretty closely identify which Southern accent goes with what area because I was mimicking everyone while I was there. When I, when I went to college, though, I had had um, advanced placement AP level English. So by the time I rolled into college, I knew how to make an argument on on paper. I knew how to develop an argumentative or basically a thesis and supporting evidence and all that stuff. But I agree with, with uh, DeGrasse Tyson that that was when I learned how to understand the way of thinking of people who disagree with me. And I actually find that more fascinating than actually making a decision. I'm actually more interested in how other people think than in how to reconcile those differences. Because once I figure out how other people think, usually the, ba- the best way to reconcile the argument f- shows itself after I understand what everyone else is thinking. Which leads us to our topic today. Are you ready? I'm ready. Okay, so, okay, this, so this topic, topic comes topic. from Angie James, who is discussing with us whether or not authors have a responsibility to readers, which then turned into what responsibility readers might have to authors. Um, Angie was specifically talking on Twitter about a urban fantasy author who ended a popular series on a cliffhanger and then when asked about it tells readers to go bug the editor and and go bug the editor to give that writer another contract. This led into a larger discussion of whether authors have a responsibility to readers or an or see what the problem is coming up with the right word here it's not owing it's not obligation it's not a responsibility like you have to do this but is there a way in which authors should live up to the expectations that they have created with their writing and say not end a series on a cliffhanger and go tell authors to take up their business case of contract with the with the editor and you had a different perspective on that well i think what i said was that i think there's a difference between whether the authors have or should have an obligation to readers. Yep. So, so authors don't have any obligation to readers. This D.B. Barrent author, who I don't re- read. Me either. Uh, um, for precisely those types of problems. <laughs> <laughs> yes, we think alike on this one. Um, they, uh, they build certain expectations in readers, and then they don't deliver. And I think that this is a lot of where the reader rage comes from because a reader is really helpless in this circumstance. It's all angry gifs and or gifs or whatever and uh, send uh, nasty emails because they can't change the outcome of that story. The author has said, this is, the, this is what I'm going to write and I've written it and that's it. Right. And so the reader response is just a reactionary response, and it's one of futility and helplessness. And powerlessness, so, yes. The only thing that they can do is to return that book, not buy it, and tell all their friends never to buy that author again. I mean, those are really the only things that you have. So if you're an author and you want to avoid that sort of response then you need to fulfill the obligation or the expectations that you've built throughout the series. And if you don't, then you're going to have that kind of response. Now, some writers, I think, kind of 
revel in that response. Like, oh, look at how passionate my readers are. Look at how I've stirred them up. Um, others, I think, uh, are really taken aback. For example, I was reading an article about Charlene Harris, and she was kind of shocked at uh, how many angry fans there were that Suki didn't end up with a certain character. I'm not I'm going to try not to spoil it for anybody who's not read it or heard about it. I was rereading all of those reviews today because as we're taping this, the audible deal of the day is book 13 in that series. And I went to look at all of the reviews and it, it's honestly like a 50-50 split. There's people who are like, yeah, that was awesome. And people who have rage, absolute yeah. rage. So I think the real harm for someone like Harris is there was a reader over at Tellerine who said, you know, I'm not interested in what Harris has to say again because I just feel like she'll, I can't trust her anymore. Will she phone it in? Will she, have, you know, not stick to her vision? Whatever it may be, I don't trust her anymore. And I think that that's really what you run the risk of as an author if you don't fulfill those expectations. So my answer is I think that they should fulfill expectations, but they aren't required to. However, when they don't, they should be, I think authors should expect the fallout. Like, for example, and I'm not oh, going to spoil this. Oh, I totally this. agree. I, I, and I'm not going to spoil this, but the end of the Divergent series, the author made a decision that was the antithesis of the ending that many, 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 many readers were expecting. And there was not only anger, but there was outright anguish and, and grief and and. Like this all awesomely, hugely painful sense of, like you said, futility, that they couldn't do anything about something that they had wanted and wanted to enjoy so much. And I think that this is particularly true of romance readers, not because we're completely insane or we have bigger emotions or we can't handle reality. That's absolute bullshit. Readers of romance have an expectation of a happy ending. And it doesn't have to be permanently happy. It can be moderately happy with hopeful for the future. But we have that expectation. And if you build up that expectation as an author and then don't deliver, romance readers get pissed. When that is combined, sort of like the the meteorolo meteorological perfect storm, when you have the romance reader combined with the cultivation of what you like to call the super fan – then you're going to have super fans who are extremely passionate and you're going to have readers who are extremely disappointed and you combine those two and you have really unhappy people who are in a, in a position of, like you said, no, very, very little power. What made the, the Divergent series worse for me as I was watching it unfold was the number of other people who said, well, what's wrong with you? You shouldn't feel that way. Don't ever tell a reader that they shouldn't feel a certain way. It makes you a douche. And it was entirely logical from my perspective that readers reacted that way because of the ending that happened. And I can't spoil it, but it was not what readers wanted. If you're going to do that as an author, expect people to be mad. And you can really understand that when you have – I think it was – was it you that pointed out that when a publisher and an author and the publicity cultivates the passion of those super fans, you can't get mad when they don't like what you did and you know they're not going to like it? Yeah, I had real problems with – the follow-up from Divergent, I mean, like you said, you don't get to control the reader reaction. No. And my, from my point of view, for, for example, for Charlene Harris and Veronica Roth, I have the same feeling. They're both um, surprised at the level of blowback that they received. <laughs> that should not have been a surprise. One, that should not have been a surprise. <laughs> and two, 
they didn't do a very good job of justifying their ending because there are plenty of books that end in non-happy endings that are embraced by readers. And so to me, it's not the reader failure as so many authors, uh, young adult authors were tweeting about and blogging about and trying to support. You just don't understand and you're not reading it correctly. Oh, bite me. Right. I, I just feel like that's an author failure. And because it's their job to convince the reader that their ending was the right ending. In the Harris interview that I read, and I can't remember now where it was, but I linked to it today, which would be November 5th. Harris said something like, you know, about five books from the ending, she was kind of done with the series and she was like, um, she just wasn't excited to write about the series anymore and she didn't want to continue it. And so I feel like, you know, she must have lost steam. Part of it might have been the HBO influence. You know, HBO influence, HBO um, had maybe a different take on the characters than she did, which maybe influenced the reader's view of what was happening inside the books. I was shocked by how many reviewers reviewers said, said, I don't don't think Charlene Harris even wrote this. this. (laughs) So the, the thing of it is, is that, it's really on the author to deliver um, a convincing argument for their ending. And if they don't, if like 50% of the readership doesn't get it, that's then, a problem. Yeah, then I don't really think it's 50% of the readers are just a bunch of dumbasses <laughs> who can't no. read. I mean, how are they great readers up until the point that they diverge from your vision? I mean, that's what I don't get. You know, all these teens that supported Veronica Roth and her series or all these readers who supported Charlene Harris and her series, they were great up until the point that they said, hey, wait, I did not see that coming and I don't like it. And then they're dumbasses and they don't, aren't reading right. Or worse, they're represented by the very, very small number of people who vocalize or write down threats against the author trying to articulate their feelings. I don't think anyone showed up on Charlene Harris's porch, and I don't think anyone is following Veronica Roth trying to punch her. But that is that; those are things that readers said, and I understand the reaction because it is never fun to have someone make a physical threat against you. However, that was a very small number of readers, and those people who said those things do not represent all of the other readers who are like, what the actual fuck just happened with this book I loved? I'm really mad. So on one hand, you have these very small number of people who are articulating their anger in a way that is very scary. And then you have the rest of these people who have a completely justifiable anger who are being told, well, you're just crazy or you're just wrong or you're just reading it wrong. And that's completely uncool. I know. But to some extent, I think it's easy to see that as hyperbolic. I mean, you and I both get um, threats in our email and I'm just like once a week. Yeah. It's like, okay. (laughs) (laughs) Terrific. I mean, I don't take any of those seriously. Do you? No, but yes, absolutely. I get hate mail and I get anger mail and I get people who think I'm a horrible human being. It's about once a week. And it could be something that I wrote in 2006. Like, okay, can't do anything about that now. For the rest of it, I don't take it terribly seriously. That is not an invitation to anyone in the podcast audience to show up on my porch unless you're bringing baked goods and then it's okay. Well, yeah, I, I mean, I would be freaked out either way. If a fan, if someone who liked me showed up on my doorstep, <laughs> yes. or someone who didn't like me showed up on my doorstep. You I would get freaked, freaked out, out if I show up on your doorstep, and you know me. <laughs> Just FYI, people, I usually don't even answer my door <laughs> unless I know you're coming over. 
Just like I don't answer my phone unless I know someone's calling me. Unless I, <laughs> like you've prearranged, hey, I'm going to call you tomorrow at 10. I'm like, okay. But otherwise, you're getting the voicemail or I'm just peeking out my upstairs windows. Eye hole, you know, yeah, or peephole. Yeah. So um, there you go. <laughs> Before you move on from that, I want to say two things about the whole readers don't know how to read sort of thing. First, it's not only romance readers who want a happy ending. I mean, if you look at the Avenger movies, um, it's not a bunch of romance uh, readers going to the Avenger movies. I'm telling you, if you ended that with characters not making it out... People would be pissed off. You are totally right about that. And I would see a huge number of threats about, I'm going to come to your home in Hollywood Hills, and I am going to stab you with Thor's whatever. (laughs) Yes, because, you know, um, Joss Whedon did film an entire movie in his house, so we all know what it looks like now. (laughs) Yeah, right, exactly. So, I mean... I'm not condoning the physical threats, but I also think that it's a little um, hysterical to to respond to them as if they were actual and um, real. And also, it, it is unfair to attribute that particular action to everyone who had a negative reaction to the book. I, it totally. It was classic derailing. They were pointing to like someone two, had two reviews, two, just two, and there was a lot more angry readers than two. Someone had said that there were dozens of death threats, and I'm like, where? And and they couldn't even point to one. Yep. And then the next day, they found one where the um, someone said that she wanted to cut a bitch, and I'm like, okay. When I was on my personal Facebook feed and saw people reading it. And they were like, I just got my copy and I'm so excited. I, I, wanted, I, to com- I wanted to comment like, okay, I need you to go to a safe place. <laughs> I need you to have a box of tissues. I need you to be far away from anything that's breakable. Um, and because- sharp. And sharp. And you should probably turn off the internet because this is going to hurt a lot. And I just want you to be ready. And I'm here for you when this happens. And I couldn't say a word. <laughs> All I could say was, oh, no. But the other thing is, is like this idea that people who want um, uplifting endings or uplifting books are somehow um, deficient, deficient, yes. dumb, yes, or lacking <sighs> in intelligence, or I lost trying to hide from the real life. And I just think about, you know, you guys, general you, um, don't have any idea what's going on in that reader's life. Nope. They could be um, in a broken household. Their one of their parents could have died. One of them could have cancer their brother could have cancer their brother may have died in afghanistan they may be bullied severely at school i mean you just don't have any idea about their real life struggles and there's very few people who haven't been touched by um something bad in their life so this idea that we're that they're somehow deficient because they don't that's not the type of fiction that they like to read. It's really uh, patronizing, condescending, disturbing, and all sorts of negative adjectives. And that really just really bothers me. I lost a lot of respect for John Green and his comments in this situation. And he's someone who I thought has done a lot, a lot of admirable and kind of amazing things with his career and with his writing and with his ability to interact with people in what seems like a genuine manner. And some of the con- comments he was making about how some of the com- comments he was mating 
seriously, I was fasting this morning. Can you hear it? Um, some of the con- comments he made about, well, I don't necessarily read for a happy ending. I read to be transported. And I'm like, you are being condescending and missing the point entirely. And that just sucks. Well, see, John Green has always come off a little to me as, um, the I'm an enlightened the white man. Let me l- tell you how it is in the world. <laughs> yeah, I can see that. But uh, I also love, someone said that John Green is the Nicholas Sparks of the YA, which is so true. Ouch! I had never heard that, but ouch! But it's true. I mean, if you look at his books, they are totally... They are are rather Sparksian. Yeah, and I like how we've developed the um, um, Nicholas Sparks as a, a verb... Like she Nicholas sparked her ending. Yes, it really is a verb. It is a thing that you that that oh, it is a thing that is done repetitively for emotional wallop that doesn't really need to be there. And I think that the Nicholas Spark ending is like the easiest way out. It's I mean, such a gimmick. There's nothing uh, that you can do short of like killing a child that will evoke more emotional response. And as an author, that's obviously what you want to do. Yes. So um, when people say, oh, she's so brave, and this is such an amazing ending, and no. I'm like, well, you know, guess what? <laughs> that's a about the, It's a lot harder to write uh, a happy ending, I think, than an unhappy ending. And it's also a lot harder to write a happy ending that does justice to the damage and the pain that those characters have suffered up until that point. And that is one skill that romance writers have, that they can take a truly painful journey and end it in an uplifting way that doesn't seem completely improbable or implausible. To be able to do that takes an enormous amount of skill. Just killing somebody or, or, you know, ending on a cliffhanger where you don't ever know what's going to happen, that's a cheap gimmick. What do you think, though, about someone who says, yeah, I ended my series on a cliffhanger, go bug my editor? Well, I mean, I think that's some crass commercialism because he probably knew that he wasn't getting a new contract and, or she, whatever the yeah. gender is, probably she because the initials, and um, hoped that the fury of people contacting the publisher to get the ending would uh, generate a new uh, contract. But guess what? Doesn't work. That's not going to work first because no one's going to, no publisher is going to uh, respond to a dozen emails and they care about actual sales. And second, if you really want to give the uh, readers an ending, you can self-publish it. I was just going to say, you have options. You have a lot of options. There, yeah. There are a lot of authors who had their contracts dropped who are now publishing the end of the series that they didn't get to finish. That is not an uncommon occurrence at this point. Yeah, Janita Lowe did it. Yep, exactly. That's who I was thinking of. And, and I'm sure that there are others. And so this whole, Jess if Michaels you want the it? ending, get me more money, it really oh, irritates me. Bite me. <laughs> the, like, like uh, readers, you have no obligation to do that. No. I mean, you can if no, you no, no, want. No. But it's you, you, it, you are not the ones who are responsible for that author's livelihood. Dislike is the uh, sort of the invitation of the reader into what is basically a business decision because the readers don't get anything out of that except the next book. But if they're going to be part of making a business transaction or be part of the argument in favor of a contract, that's just taking advantage of people. That's, that's not cool. That's, that's not their business. 
it's sort of like you know you can you can do a Kickstarter, but I don't think kickstarting emails to your editor is really the way to go. Well, I also think it's really emotionally manipulative. Yes. Oh, you know, you've stuck with me for six books and I've not ended it yet. And guess what? I'm not going to end it unless you guys can convince my publisher to give me another three book contract. Yeah, that is not the reader's job. Ugh. I find that really irritating. Mm. I have other words that I could use, but I'm going to refrain. Well, you know, you can use whatever words you want, because ever since I changed the title of the podcast and took out the word bitches, iTunes has left us alone, so you can drop as many bombs as you'd like. Chicken. (laughs) Chicken, chicken, chicken. (laughs) We are so quite not PG-13. There is a deal at Target that ends November 9th that you can bring in any old iPad, including your first generation one. Um, so long as it works, uh, and get $200 gift card. Whoa, $200? Yep. That's a lot. Yeah, so if you wanted to, for example, get an iPad mini, you could trade in your old iPad and buy the new iPad mini for like, I don't know, $100 or something like that. Awesome. Any old iPad, even if it's cracked, as long as it worked. I don't know if as long as it's cracked. So that would be good. I like $200 at Target. That's good to know. And that ends uh, November 9th? Correct. And what is coming up on uh, Dear Author next week? Reviews. <laughs> For really real. Really, For really. Real. Wow. Real. You mean you mean like like the next podcast we're going to talk about romance novels? Whoa. Oh, here's the deal. I want to get to um, 10,000 Facebook likes. So if everyone in the podcast can like Dear Author and then tell all of their other friends, I need about 3,500 of you to do that. No, sorry, 2,500 of you. To I've already work. liked you, though. I liked you. I like you know, plenty. But um, I need 2,500 more of you. You're not, you're not enough for me, Sarah. Oh, fine. Didn't you already hit 10,000? I think that that was some kind of error. Because remember when I told you, I said there's a lot of faces that are, fa- you know, that are just eggs or whatever? Right. Yeah, they were just quite, they were blank slates. Yeah, I think that was a Facebook error. <laughs> I was like, wait, didn't you already do this? What? Why are you doing See, it See, I think that was a Facebook error because, like, it happened, and I'm like, what happened? Because I was, like, at 2,500 followers or likes, and then, um, like, a week later, they all disappeared. That's so I think not that, good. So I think that was a Facebook thing. We are reviewing books uh, next week, and we should be having a piece about the overuse of the word bullying and how bullying is used to describe everything that you don't agree with. Yes, that is a good topic. So we do have reviews by uh, for books by uh, Serena Bell, which we don't recommend. Uh, Jackie Ashendon, which I thought was intriguing but problematic. Um, Random by Lark O'Neill, which was uh, is actually Barbara Samuel's pen name for what? a new adult book she self published, and um, the How reviewer said it's random, just like the title. <laughs> Lark O'Neill. Okay. Then we have a marvelous guest review from Laura Florand um, recommending the book In the Clear by Tamara Morgan, which is a novella. And we're helping Escape Publishing to celebrate their birthday with a couple bundle giveaways. Oh, that's nice. Yeah. Apparently, they're one year old on the f- sometime next week. That's fantastic. I was going to say the 14th because that's when I have it scheduled, but it's possible that it could, I just put it there. <laughs> 
<laughs> Happy birthday sometime, Escape Publishing. Hey, I think if it's your birthday, you can celebrate for a whole week. There's nothing wrong with that. Oh, and then we'll be publishing reviews by uh, for Kinked by Thea Harrison, which was a recommended read at Dear Author. Um, and um, the Yours to Keep by Serena Bell was... Uh, a mix of noblesse, oblige, racism, and reverse classism. So oh, fantastic. Get it all. There was mommy shaming in the book. Oh, God. Oh, God. If you were a stay-at-home mom, you are just... Uh, don't go near there. Well, don't read the book then. Well, the hero in um, Serena Bell's uh, book calls the stay-at-home mom desperate mommies. <gasps> no. Yeah. No. Desperate mommy. He's a pediatrician. <gasps> Desperate mommies were an occupational hazard, like uh. parents who asked him pediatric questions at awkward moments. They were usually the mothers of infants or toddlers. They felt ugly and unattractive because of post-pregnancy body changes, insecure because dynamics in their household had shifted radically, and bored because they were smart and highly educated, but they'd been forced to spend long hours playing Candyland and watching Sesame Street. It all added up to a terrible case of frustration, and he was, unfortunately, an outlet. He felt sorry for them. <gasps> Actually, he hurt from them. Her hurt for them, partially because he remembered when Trish went through a similar phase, but that didn't keep him from maintaining a safe distance, as much for their own good as his. Oh, no, oh. no, oh, no, 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 no. Desperate no. mommies. Desperate yeah. mommies, yeah. Wow. Ouch. So I read a book that I am reviewing next week on Smart Bitches that made me so angry. I went on Goodreads to give it a give it a review, like a brief review, and all I could do was hit one star and I had to stop. I was so angry. Like I can't even just describe how angry this book made me. In the course of the story, the heroine is a Australian woman who is traveling and her goal is to see all of North America. And in the beginning of the book, she gets in trouble because she's talking to a street vendor in Guatemala about his jade. And she shows too much interest and doesn't have enough language skills to explain that's too much I can't buy. And so he starts to chase her down the street, which, okay. So she runs into a bar and she sees a guy who is wearing a Berkeley sweatshirt and she's pretty sure he speaks English. So she sits down with him and she says, would you just pretend to be my husband for a minute? And so far I'm okay. I'm on board. And the guy says, okay, sure. And he speaks to the vendor in Spanish and clears it up and pretends to be the husband and apologizes. And then the vendor looks at her and calls her a whore in Spanish and spits at her feet and walks away. And they are both totally okay with this. Okay. Okay. So we're going to, okay, I'm still going. Because you know I love books about traveling and I love books about people who are fish out of water and, and I love to travel places in my books. So yeah, I'm still on board. He's a little cagey about where he comes from. She, he lets her think that he's a bartender and in reality he owns a bunch of bars and is a bit more well off. And his one of his parents is from Guatemala and the other parent I believe was American. And so he is fluent in Spanish and very familiar with the village because that's where half of his family is from. He's there looking for something. He's not very clear about what it is. And there's a lot of hints dropped. So there's like this mystery to his character. That didn't help when he and um, the heroine go out and start drinking wine and he's tasting it and she's noticing that when he drinks it, he tastes it in a way like he holds it in his mouth and he samples it and he smells it. So he's clearly familiar with wine. She gets really, really drunk without meaning to and 
realizes when she's thinking about it that she hadn't had anything to eat since the day before. And she's cognizant of the fact that she's placed herself in a vulnerable position with a person that she barely knows. And she can't remember where her hostel is. She remembers it geographically. She doesn't know the street address. And she goes out on the street and sprains her ankle on a cobblestone. And he helps her up and he takes her back to his hotel. And they even have like a, a moment where she acknowledges that this is not a safe thing for her to do. But she can tell he's a good guy. And I'm like, all right, he's the hero. I'm still on board. So she gets into his bed and she's very excited to have a bathroom that's attached to the hotel room and a room that is clean and quiet and and cool and nicely furnished because she has been doing um, homestays in exchange for work in villages and also staying at hostels. So she hasn't had what she calls an end suite or attached bathroom in a while. She gets into his bed and she passes out. And he stays there and he reads a book. And then when she wakes up a couple hours later, um, he orders dinner and then they go back out. I am just going to read this because maybe you can tell me that I am reading this wrong. And I would be really happy if I was reading this wrong because this one scene sort of informs my rage for the rest of the book. And I had to not – I couldn't finish it because I felt the hero was such a creep and so manipulative and abusive. I wanted to do really mean things to him because he was a douche. So anyway, I'm going to read this line because it gave me the anger. Okay. So they're in the dance studio and she twists her ankle again, so they're sitting down, and he, the dance studio is owned by his aunt. And so she's asking him questions, like, who are these people, and how is she related to you? And this is what he's thinking. This is from his point of view. Polly leaned in closer, the side of her breast brushing his arm. It sent a shockwave through his body and sent the primitive part of his brain into overdrive. The same primitive part of his brain that had watched Polly climb into his bed that afternoon and yelled vicious insults at the more sophisticated part of his brain that had stopped him from joining her right between those sheets. She was unconscious. And there is a part of his brain that was like, dude, you totally should have boned her. That's not okay. Am I reading that wrong? Or is that just not okay? I almost knocked shit off my desk. (laughs) My plates are flying over here. I have claws of rage. Am I reading that wrong? Or is that gross? No. But that's right up there with the nurse who gets turned on by the guy's chicken uh, when she's... uh, Trying to provide medical care. Yes, because he's just gotten the absolute tar beaten out of him. Right. I don't understand it. I mean, I, I not only do is it offensive, but I just don't even understand it. Like, why would you want to go have sex with someone who is unconscious? And, and I realize that by asking that question, I am ignoring the fact that this is apparently a regular occurrence among young people in the United States. That having sex with people who are drunk and unable to consent is actually a thing that people think it's okay to do because it happens a lot. That's not a hero. That's not okay. And so I read the rest of the book thinking, okay, maybe, maybe I read that wrong. Maybe I read that incorrectly. And then he does other things that are equally creepy and manipulative. And I just had to stop because I didn't. I, I didn't want her to be with him. I wanted her to go home and get as far away from him as a human being as possible. So I have a very angry um, review of that book coming up. I think, I mean, what I think what we're supposed to understand from this, because I have problems with the kind of over-the-top lust. Um, yes, for example, where his dick is a divining rod? No, because like in this book I just read by Samantha Beck called uh, Falling for the Marine, which was cute and funny. But in the beginning, she's a massage therapist, and she gets it on or starts to get get it on with the hero in, in her therapy room. And Good. I just was like, well, f- 
why would you ever do that? As a massage therapist, you probably have to fight those kind of lewd comments all the time and the reputation that you're not really a therapist at all. And But you're living up to that stereotype. Why can't you just, hey, let's go out to the car or something? And I mean, I get that the idea is that they're so overcome with lust that their hindbrain overtakes them, but it it's stupid. Yeah, when... There's there's a line, I think, between the lust has overtaken me and I am so turned on, I don't care. And I am so turned on, I forget about being stupid and my own self-preservation. Like, I have a really hard time with that. It's like it's like when you stop when you're being pursued by men with guns, but you're going to ha- like take five minutes and have sex in the stairwell. Really? No, you're not. Really? No. I don't I don't understand that either. The whole the whole primitive part of somebody's brain taking over and then that's what the primitive part wanted to do. I am done with the primitive part of that person's brain. I want nothing to do with that human being because there is something wrong there. But then I started thinking about all the men who are overpowered with lust and I shouldn't be doing this. I shouldn't be doing this, but I really want to do this. Sometimes that's okay. And I tried to figure out what was the difference and the best I can come up with is that there is a line between the impulse and the instinctual desire of somebody and then that impulse and instinct making you do something really repulsive or stupid or ignorant or gross. And that's all for this week's podcast. I hope you enjoyed it. Next week, Jane and I are going to be talking about what happens when you get to the end of a book and it totally bums you out because that's a thing that happens quite often to many readers. And this particular reader wanted to know how we grade a book when that happens. So we have a discussion about that, plus a discussion of what we're reading. The music that you're listening to was provided by Sassy Outwater, because it always is, and it's awesome, right? This is Room 215 from Peat Bog Fairies. Yay! What what day isn't made better with a little Peat Bog? Pretty soon we're going to have new music from Sassy, and she promises me that it is incredibly awesome and so excellent. And so we're going to have all the best kind of holiday music, the kind that isn't playing in the department store and driving you bonkers, but is actually kind of cool and awesome. So I'm looking forward to that, and I hope you are too. We want to thank our sponsor, Intermix and Penguin, for sponsoring the podcast. They would like to tell you about Pamela Clare's new book, Striking Distance. Her past was a mystery to her, and when Baghdad-based reporter Laura was kidnapped by Al-Qaeda, she never really knew why. Luckily, her sexy Navy SEAL rescuer is on a mission to keep her safe, and finding out the truth may be the most dangerous thing they've done yet. You can pick up Pamela Clare's new romantic action thriller, Striking Distance, today on sale wherever books are sold. And y'all, between you and me, I am not a romantic suspense reader because, you know, I can't handle the entrails and the violence, but Pamela Clare is so good. She is very talented. So if you like that kind of book, you should totally check this out. And I'm not just saying that because, you know, podcast sponsorship. No, no. Just between you and me, Pamela Clare is all kinds of talented. So hope you like that book. If you do read it, I want you to let me know. If you have ideas for the podcast, you know what to do, right? You can email us at sbjpodcast at gmail.com because we love email. Plus, you can call us on our Google Voice number, 1201371DBSA. Don't forget to give us your name and where you're calling from. And if you have ideas and you want to call us, please call. It's really cool. It's fun. Really. Trust me. Give us a call. Tell us what you think. Have an idea. Ask us questions. You know, we were talking about hate mail. If you want to call and tell us why we suck, that's okay. Feel free. Wherever you are, Jane and I wish you the very best of reading.